So I've got the best job in the world today. I get to catch up with my good friend Haz. Say hi, Haz. Hi. And Haz uh, and I are going to be chatting about some of the stuff we, well, we, we love so much. Uh, creating uh, movies, games, telling stories, working virtual production, might even cross over into a little Gen AI talk. Um, I think it's just a just a fun yeah. chat about all the stuff we like doing. Pretty much covered it, man. Yeah. Tell, tell us about um, what you do. So I run a production company called Hazimation, and essentially we make feature films, TV series, episodic, video games, and anything that involves storytelling. And we predominantly use real-time technology, specifically Unreal Engine, to do pretty much 99.1% of our work. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be such a fun conversation because it's kind of the stuff that I love doing too. And there's a lot of crossover between what you do and I do. Yeah. Uh, my focus tends to be more on the story development side of things, um, originating and developing IP, as the industry would call it, yeah. intellectual property. Um, I tend to work with uh, tech companies and bring meaning to their amazing tech through character-driven storytelling. And sometimes I work with established entertainment companies to make smarter choices in tech to advance their storytelling capabilities. And it's so great to be able to sit down with you and talk about this stuff. Um, and Scan have sort of brought us together yes. uh, because they um, they cross over into this space quite a bit with their with the tech uh, software and hardware that they. Um, that they curate for creators like you and me. So it would be great to talk about workflows and how you approach some of your storytelling. Sure. But because there are so many different mediums that you work in, um, it's hard to know where to begin because your your workflow tends to be quite transmedia. 100%, yeah. I mean, I originally started in live action, right? You know, the whole idea of me becoming a filmmaker was to be on set and to work with actors and to be behind the camera and the movie magic, right? But like when the pandemic hit, you know, all that got put on pause. As we all know, it was a terrible time and production was put on hold, projects were put on hold. Hollywood in general didn't know what was happening, um, but everyone wanted to work, right? Actors wanted to work. So they were willing to work remotely and do recordings via Zoom or something, right? And in my case, I had a bunch of live action projects where I'm like, oh, I don't know how long this is gonna last for, but I'm just, itching to make stuff to make content and we were already using unreal engine to do pre-visualization so you know for those that know previs previs is basically a moving storyboard in animated form of what the movie could look like or feel like tonally so we're using unreal for that and i guess i was having way too much fun using unreal to make these sequences that i just one day spoke to my producing partner paula crickard i'm like you know i don't know when this pandemic's gonna be over but we're like what if we made an animated feature film entirely in Unreal Engine? Now, of course, I remember going to meetings in LA and the minute you say, and I'm sure you're familiar with this as well, the minute you say animation, it's usually the expensive medium in filmmaking, right? It is like, if you've got a ton of money, then make animated films. Otherwise, no, don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and we decided let's try a 10 minute test sequence. We did a 10 minute test sequence. We did it pretty fast and we realized, oh my God, we have a movie and then it just snowballed from there and we realized there's just and i guess it's empowerment right as a, as a filmmaker i get to not be kind of like stuck down to, to pipelines as much and just focus on good storytelling and i think tools like unreal engine and omniverse and all these other tools out there enables filmmakers like you and me to tell stories yeah absolutely uh going back to your point about the perception when you mention animation yeah. i've noticed two things that happen um, one is when you mention animation, 
immediately executives tend to compartmentalize the storytelling. They're like, oh, animation, okay, that's a bucket that's over here. And it's generally considered a family or children's entertainment medium. I think some of those preconceptions are being challenged by shows like um, Love, Death and Robots on Netflix, or even some of the Adult Swim stuff that's been going for ages. Um, and even Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Pinocchio yeah. where yes, it's a family-friendly movie, but it is, isn't the cookie-cutter stuff that Hollywood would often um, put animation in. So that tends to happen when, you, when I mention animation because I, I love working in animation. I work in live action as well, yeah. like, uh, a series production. But um, right now I'm working on an animated show, an independently created animated show. Um, but, so that stigma tends to happen. The other thing on the cost side of things, yeah. because animation historically has always taken so long and it needs an army of people to create, there's, a, again, a preconceived idea, as you said, an expensive element. Tool development as well. Like, a lot of these, yeah. like you know, like places like Pixar and DreamWorks, you know, they, they're well known for like having their own proprietary tool set. Right. Even places like ILM and stuff you know, who made like, you know, films like Jurassic Park and so on. They will, they will be sought after by Hollywood executives because they had the only way to make those films, right? They mm-hmm. built tools and each animated show that has a new look, even the Spider-Verse film that just recently came out, you know, they built a specific tool set. And that's usually a big, like the entry to barrier is so high for filmmakers like us. We're like, oh, maybe once we've made our blockbuster, we could dabble in animation. Whereas now you can dabble in animation with things mm-hmm. like Unreal Engine. You could, you know, at least explore it. And mm-hmm. if you want to take it further, like, like we are doing, you know, we can move into a commercial realm where we actually are making a 93 minute movie. But like, it's really about that, that barrier to entry that has just literally just been lowered massively. Yeah, and it's a wonderful time to be a creator. Yeah. If I think of, you mentioned the pandemic, like 2020, 20, yeah, 2020 yeah. to now 2023, just in the past three years, what have you seen happening in this space, in the real time space? That is, um, that is making it even more real for you as a, you know, as a. I think a, I think it's a combination of you have the software, but if you don't have the right hardware to support that, then you are going to be, you know, like stuck, right? So I think the big thing that we've noticed during the pandemic how accessible hardware has become, price point as well, because everyone's working from home. So like, you know, hardware manufacturers are like tripling their manufacturing costs to get hardware out when mm. the, the more there is the more affordable it becomes the other thing with real time is um just things like animation tools motion capture like i was directing motion capture via zoom um so we, we had this wonderful uh, mocap artist called gabriella and she was based in florida is based in florida and um and i would do my shot list i'll do my blocking in unreal send it to her We'll screen share. So on one side of my window, I'll have the script. I'll have the blocking plan. I'll have the Unreal Engine window. And she'll have her Unreal Engine window live linked into her XNC. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to direct it. And she'll be able to look at it and show me the result in real time. Yeah. Now, that's a massive advancement. And that advancement only came because of necessity mm-hmm. to make stuff. You know, like naturally, if there was no pandemic, I'd be like, no, let's go to a mocap stage. I, this doesn't feel right. Whereas I had no choice but to make it work. And because when you have no choice but to make it work, advancement in technology happens. Yeah, New processes happen, pipeline yeah. happen, and new workflows. And the way you work as a filmmaker changes massively. Yeah, unfortunately, technology in, in real time, particularly with Unreal Engine, um, had got to that point yeah. where it was poised and ready to facilitate that. I'm finding a similar sort of... Um, uh, cr- sort of creative freedom and opportunity to to work in real time in ways that I've 
never been able to before with um, USD and Omniverse being part of my pipeline. So if for those who aren't aware, USD, Universal Scene Descriptor uh, file format, it's actually, it's more than a file format, but um, essentially it's a, it's a system created by Pixar. It's an open source system that allows um, a smarter 3D workflow uh, than, than before. So, you know, historically file formats for 3D have been things like FBX and OBJs that have been around for ages and FBX is still used heavily in the industry. The problem with uh, files like FBX is um, they're quite self-contained yeah. and and um, if you wanted to update uh, an, op uh, an FBX file, you have to open up the app that you created it in, yeah. make your changes, save it as an FBX file, and then get the Unreal Engine to pick it up again, refresh the link. What's nice about USD is you can cut out that whole process. Uh, if all your applications are referencing the same USD sure. file, you can update the texture, say in Substance Painter, and without you having to do a file export and save and all that sort of stuff, it updates in your scene. So that, speaking of making things easier and freeing yeah. up friction, um, easing friction, uh, right there is a big, a big advancement. So for me, when I'm working in um, Unreal, yeah. uh, I prefer to have my files in a USD format because it means that I can check it out in Omniverse, check it out in Substance uh, Painter or even Maya and get everything working at the same time um, and, and just keep moving. You know, And for me, I'm not a technical, I'm not a TD, right? I don't come from a technical background. My background is story and art and I love to draw. That, that was kind of my entry point into the CG workflow. So anything you can put in to grease the wheels of production yeah. Um, uh, is uh, super helpful. So that's a really exciting part of um, where real time is headed now. The collaboration, USD is collaboration though, like, you know, you talk about USD and how, you know, having a standard where you could, you know, interoperability between various software tools, right? Um, and, you know, when you're collaborating with small teams, the big teams, you don't really want someone to send in an FBX and someone send in an Alembic. Mm. And then you bring it into Unreal, you're like, oh, we need to make a change. You have to go back to that artist. Um, you kind of want one standard, right? And I think mm -hmm. standardization is very important. And I think that's become quite apparent, especially when people are now working all over the world on one project. You know, no longer are we in the same building and sharing the same pipeline and going downstairs to the IT guys, hey, my thing's busted. Everyone's working everywhere. And it's great because like, even for me, like wearing my producer's hat on, I'm not hiring people to work on my shows based on their location anymore now. It's like, I love your character work. Yes, it's done in Blender. We don't use Blender, but as long as you output as USD or Alembic or whatever format works in our pipeline, you're hired. And mm -hmm. it's so nice to hire based on talent as yeah. opposed to like location-based. Mm -hmm. you know? So how do you approach, that's a really good point. How do you approach um, your team structure now for, for consistency, right? So there's the, far, the software side of things, sure. but what's the production environment like? Does everyone have the same hardware requirements? 100%. Like one of the things, like we have a very generalist approach in our studio. We very rarely hire specialists, unless you're like a motion capture performer or, or you specialize in hair and groom, but even that's become more generalist. And the reason we have a generalist approach is because um, we want to retain our team. You know, the whole idea is when you build a studio, you kind of are building a family of creative. You're building a tribe, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't want that person to like build all this really cool workflow with you and then go so staff retention or team retention is a big thing so for me like kitting out my team with good hardware is a plus you know i don't want any members of my team go oh you know i i can't compile this latest build of the game because i don't have enough memory or i don't have a thread ripper 
but you guys in London have a Threadripper. Mm -hmm. Can you compile it? So it'll be uneven, right? It'd be uneven. So for us, we have a rule that we all use the same hardware. You know, like we we buy it from Scan. And for us to have all the hardware from the same place, same technical support from the same same place, built the same way. So like if someone's machine is broken, first off, any one of us on the team could most probably fix it within a couple of hours. If it's a real hardware issue, then we have that one place that we bought the machine from, scan in our case, yeah, and we just get on the phone and say, hey, fix it. <laughs> it also means that if in a team environment, someone's, it doesn't have to be broken, but someone's got a, an issue that they've got to trouble, troubleshoot, sure. that they're incapable of fully troubleshooting on their yeah. own, you've got the exact same environment yeah. that you can try and replicate their results. Right, because it's the same drivers, same hardware, 100%. same kit. And what what kind of system are you running your stuff on? Is it an AMD system? Or yeah, a- I mean, we we recently made the switch to AMD mainly because of our game development. Like we originally were working, we still work with NVIDIA. Like all our animated films, um, our first animated film was all done on, in fact, fun fact, dude, our actually animated film Rift, which is coming out probably later in the year, that was done firstly all in Unreal Engine, Final Pixels, but it was also rendered out entirely in one scan FreeSX machine with um, an A6000 NVIDIA card. Wow, a full feature film. That's 93 minutes, 4K EXR 10-bit rendered on one machine. Amazing. And again, not by choice because we were limited budget. And as a director, I was also editing and it was our pandemic movie, Uh right? So we didn't have like access to a render farm at the time, but it just shows you like, having a really solid system that's not only doing all the Unreal Engine work, doing all the editorial, doing the deliverables, and all rendered on one card. And I'm still using that machine today. Yeah. Right? Wow. So you don't need a render farm. That old paradigm is being challenged, right? If you're an indie production, you can, uh, you don't have to factor in a render farm's cost. No. I mean, obviously, there's, there's a pros and cons of that. I mean, when we obviously render on one machine, we optimize the hell out of our scenes. You know, we don't have everything cramped up to 100% anti-aliasing. You know, we do test renders if it's good enough. We make sure our sampling is correct. Like, so, you know, all the noise on the on the face, we make sure we we crank up the sample rates for those specific shots. But if you've got a wide shot and you've got a couple of guys fighting and it's motion blurred, I'm not going to go to town and get a perfect sampling on that because it's freaking motion blurred, right? So optimization is a big workflow. And again, understanding your hardware. So it was one of the reasons we switched over to um, AMD for our games development. So we did a spin-off video game while making Rift because we're a sucker for pain, as if we just <laughs> didn't have enough work. Um, it was a test, originally it was a test that I wanted to animate a, a car chase sequence. So when you see the trailer, you'll see the car chase sequence. And we're not animators, animate, like we can animate, but we're not like, like you're an animator, like you, you've crafted that, you know, that's, you, know, you understand weight and was, I don't animate to that level, but I still need to animate this freaking card. It needs to look good. So what do I do? So we plugged in an Xbox controller and we we set it in game mode and we started driving the car around and you get all this free stuff in, yeah, in all real the physics time. and stuff. Right, yeah. all the suspension, all the skids. Like imagine animating that would have been a nightmare to get it to look right. So we were able to do that and then we kind of recorded the moves into sequencer as a bunch of frames, baked it and voila. But while we we're doing that process, we're like, this was so much fun. Wouldn't it be cool if we made a game? So we did a 10 minute, like, no, 10 minute. We did like a, a 10 minute gameplay version, like game time of uh-huh. a demo. Released it on Steam. Wasn't very good, I have to say, but it was enough for us to test the market if people wanted the game. And test your pipeline. Test this pipeline. theory of like, if I'm yes. in a game engine and I'm using it 
to control a car with cinematic results, yeah. um, you're kind of halfway there to making a game anyway. 100%. I mean, as you know, like making a game is all about game design, right? Mm. But, and that's the cool thing. When we realized when we were doing this demo that we weren't thinking about, oh, we have to build specific engine features. Actually, because you know, I, I started my career back in 98, 99. It kind of shows my age here, dude. But like, you know, I was working on like, PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 game titles. And we didn't have this luxury like we have today. You know, our textures are like this tiny, sort of like 64 by 64 tiled, one texture map UV'd to wrap around a bike and it had to look good. You know, kids today. <laughs> I know, they've got so No idea how good they've got it. Yeah, no idea. Like they complain it's like, oh, I don't have a 4K texture. I tried 64 by 64 <laughs> tiled. But I, and I guess that's where um, my whole independent filmmaking ethos came in. When you're, you know, when you are given nothing to work with, but you're still going to make it feel big, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas today, you have amazing hardware, amazing oh, yeah. software and technology, yeah. but you still need to optimize, right? I mean, no one's going to download a, a 100 gig game because it looks amazing. You still have to optimize. So one of the reasons we went to AMD is because we, when we released the demo on Steam, Microsoft reached out to us and said, hey, you should apply for the idea Xbox program. You're talking about the 10 minute driving playable demo. Well, yeah, it was driving and shooting. Driving and shooting, okay. Yeah, in fact, we removed the driving because it ended up being in the movie um, when we just made it a shoot 'em up. Um, and we had a lot of feedback on Steam. And that's the other thing also, dude, like, you know, you know this, but when you make a movie, you can't do an early access of your movie, right? <laughs> because it's, it, you, know, you can't release it in the public. Hey, what do you think? It's ruined. Whereas in the video game world, you can. You can. You have an, yeah. and they, like the audience in, in game, I mean, they're brutal. Oh my God, you see some of the Steam comments, they're brutal. But we've got QA, quality assurance testing, yeah. we've got market testing. And they and the ones that love your game and they know it's rough, they're like, we'll support it, come back in like a year's time when it's fixed. Well, so, audience yeah. testing happens in movies, but that's usually when you've, you've already wrapped 100%. and you've got a cut. 100%. And sometimes depending on the audience reaction, you'll go back in for reshoots and that's often a often a bad sign. Not always, but often a, a worrying sign yeah. because it's such a, a linear and auto-driven or director-driven, sure. like there's a vision that they're trying to get across. Doesn't that, that doesn't mean a game doesn't have that, but there's, as a medium, people are much more accepting of the iterations that come 100%, afterwards. 100%. Now more than ever, like games as a service, people realize, yeah, the, the, the launch version of the game will probably be patched day one. Yeah. And this game will probably get better and have more features. And quite often, sequels to games are better, right? Yeah. But, you know, the GTA 5 is way better than GTA 3, for example. For sure. For uh, sure. Whereas movies, it's not often, that's very well, rarely I, the case. But you've kind of hit the nail there, Rafi. Like, you know, movies is a very linear format. You know, you as a filmmaker, you are forcing the audience to watch that frame. You know, you point a camera there, you like that scene, you're forcing the audience to watch that and you're taking them on a roller coaster ride. Because, like, a roller coaster is, you know, you don't have control of that roller coaster, right? Mm -hmm. It's pre scripted for you and yeah. you just enjoy the ride, mm -hmm. which is why a great movie feels like a roller coaster ride, you know, really mm -hmm. fun ones. Whereas in a video game, it's not like that. You know, you build a 360 environment, you have no control if that player is going to look over there or look over there. So, every single thing has to be built right. You kind of set the sandbox experience and it's the player that kind of unveils that for yeah, you. Yeah, they've got the, um, what do you call it, the agency over the character. The agency. 
Yeah. 100%. And it's even worse if you're creating a VR game. I say worse. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it can be nice for the player because they have even more freedom, but there's really nowhere to hide your, your game design. <sighs> Absolutely. Uh, in a VR game. I mean, yeah. you. I mean, I've seen stuff that you've been posting, dude. Like where you're creating in VR, you're painting and sculpting in VR. Like that must be really interesting because I'm like, I'm. I work in 3D, but I still can't imagine being in that 3D space. What's the difference between like, like in, from an experiential point of view? Yeah. Well, uh, it kind of came out of necessity because I don't come. I'm not a TD. I don't come from a technically trained 3D background. Um, I. I don't really enjoy and I don't find the typical 3D modeling process intuitive, keyboard, mouse, or even with the stylus right. via a 2D screen, because I'm always negotiating the camera. And if I'm trying to rig something to draw bones actually through a yeah. 3D model, I'm always drawing the, bo drawing the bones in the wrong place. It's just not intuitive for me. But with VR, it means that um, a lot of those technical barriers are significantly lowered for me because wow. it feels like an extension of drawing. And I've drawn my whole life and drawing, um, on, at my drawing table, you know, 2D artwork, I feel connected to the artwork because I'm you know, using a pencil. It just feels natural yeah, to me. Yeah. So in 3D, for me to create a three-dimensional surface, it just makes more sense for me to do it spatially in, you know, in a native, in a, in a way that's native to the, to the output format, 3D. So putting on the VR headset wow. means that I can sculpt and paint much more intuitively than I can uh, on a 3D model. Than, um, than I could traditionally. And it means that, you know, with the virtual production workflow, if I'm dressing a set, once I've created my objects, putting on my headset, I can walk around my virtual set and put objects where I would as if I was working on a real set. So it taps wow. into my live action director's workflow as well. So when I worked on TV shows like Haven and Law and Order SVU and, you know, shows like that or Bates Motel, the, the, being on set with something that's been designed to look like that world gives you ideas of story and the way you want to shoot stuff and the way you want to collaborate with actors. Yeah. It comes from the space that you inhabit. As an animator, you it takes forever to get to that stage and of production. And even then, you're, you've still got this, yeah. you know, the 2D screen. But if you put on the VR headset, you enter the animated world. You feel like you're a member of, you know, the, the cast and crew that are in your show. So that's why I like it as part of my creative it's process. familiar, isn't it? Like, I, I feel you about the whole idea of being familiar, like, with what you're so tuned to doing, which in your case, drawing on paper, mm -hmm. on canvases. Like, for me, like, I mean, I can't draw as good as you. Like, I do matchstick men. Like, you should see my storyboard shot list. They're matchstick men. I mean, they get the point across. But well, then that's okay. Then it's communication, that's, yeah. right? But for me, like, when I, during the pandemic, like, I was really getting FOMO, you know, feeling I'm missing out, like, being on set. And specifically, you know, blocking your shots out. So I remember like spending like 40 bucks on Amazon on this like shoulder rig. I had my iPad attached to it and I was like holding it. Yeah. And I, I was just in the room and I was like changing focus and it felt like I was back on set making a movie. So I think, you know, that idea of familiarizing yourself mm -hmm. and you know, the idea of like, oh, this feels like being on set. And that's the point, right? Of whether it's hardware, software, workflow, you kind of have to make it work for you. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to conform or change the way you work because a software or a pipeline designed that way or you're stuck with a specific hardware, you should make it work the other way around. And I found, you know, accepting that, saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a system that works for me. So I, I, I want to get into the virtual production side mm. of things because we're, we're veering into that. But before we do, I'd love to understand why AMD hardware makes yeah. a difference for the game development environment. Yeah. I'm not there yet with my show, but the, 
you know, the fact that I make my show with real-time tech in the back of my mind, because it's a kid's show, I want to be in a situation as an indie creator that when I have the bandwidth to explore an interactive format for children using my, my characters, I want to be able to not so much pivot, but be able to open up that avenue sure. relatively quickly. So I'm really interested in why it, the AMD hardware makes a difference for your game development environment. For sure. I mean, the, AM, the idea to move to AMD was both um, technically and strategic, obviously. Like, um, so it all started off with Microsoft signing us on this wonderful program called Idea Xbox, which is independent developers. And basically, you send them your demo, you send them your pitch, and they look at it. And if they like it, they provide you with, get ready for this, development kits. Now, for those of you watching, like who've been in the games industry, you know how hard it is to get dev kits, right? They're extremely expensive and very hard. And that's where we talk about the barrier to entry, right? To make yeah. a console game, like, oh, I can make a PC game. Ooh, a console, that's like for the bigger, for the big boys, all right? Whereas I have dev kits in house, right? So, and those dev kits are AMD powered. And then we're looking at making console games. So our whole business model is creating premium level um, console games. Um, done in our efficient indie pipeline, right? And if you look at the consoles hardware like PS5, it's AMD chipset, you know, Xbox, AMD chipset. We only have two dev kits. We can't afford to buy a ton more. So for us, we build piece, we have our PCs built with AMD hardware to kind of replicate what those consoles are so that we are developing for the target hardware. That is the reason why I went to AMD. And, but of course, as we started using the AMD tool sets, we're like, oh my God, like not only is it really fast and everything, it comes with software that allows you to tweak the settings. I'm not just talking about overclocking here. I'm talking way more than that. Like tweak the settings of the way, how much reflections are shown, how much shadows are shown, and kind of mimic what the target console would be. In our case, it's the Series X, right? Mm -hmm. But we may have to do a Series S Xbox version. And what, do we get a Series S dev kit? No, you want to tweak your machine. So we found that AMD hardware is very much very um, attuned to working in game development more than other cards that we found. Okay, cool. That's interesting. Good to know. It makes a lot of sense. Of course, they're AMD, AMD-based um, consoles. Absolutely. But yeah, it's funny because like back in the day, like it was always NVIDIA, right? We know even our early demo was done in the NVIDIA RTX, you know, it had the RTX setting, but now I think, you know, you have the choice. And I think it's important for creators to have a choice. Yeah. And I think, you know, manufacturers, software developers, everyone, there isn't that crazy, you know, that kind of like that, that space race kind of vibe where who's going to have the best card, who's going to best, best software. I think you're going to find everyone's doing crossovers. Every PC has a mix of various hardware from different manufacturers because the creators have control to tailor the hardware they want. Yeah, and it's driven by your use case as 100%. a as a creator. Yeah, and that's analogous to where you put your effort in, even in a live action shoot. Sure. What your most important shots are. So the way you would light a close up in the real world yeah. with the real actors, you're going to go through a lot more effort to get the shadows soft and get the framing right and use the right lens for that. Whereas a wide shot that goes goes by in like a couple of seconds or an action sequence where you know it. There's a whip pan involved, right. or the story point is it's less about um, the uh, emotional impact of yeah, the, or the actor. Intimacy. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not about the intimacy. It's more about the spectacle right. and, and having um, 
uh, a visceral effect on the on the audience. Yeah, yeah you would cut your cloth uh, accordingly, production wise. Essentially, you said that though, because you're like so far what we're talking about. We keep we both keep referencing live action. We reference cinematography specifically what we just talked about and like, i always get people asking like how'd you get this really cool shot has like how's it why does it feel like a movie i'm like study photography mm-hmm. you know you don't you know having good cinematography in your unreal engine sequences isn't because we're using unreal engine we have lumen lighting right and we have a virtual camera no you know you need to go back to basics yeah understand what makes a good shot understand lighting we're just talking about how you light in real world well it's no different to how you light in cg as well you still need your three point light you have your fill light you have your edge lights you have additional lights for the eyes to give uh-huh. it life you know um and i always find that you know people tend to miss that especially new upcoming artists tend to miss the fact that Look at what works in live action, traditional, because mm-hmm. all of that still works in CG. And even people that are been in the industry for so long, like especially like people that work on set or cinematographers specifically, they're like, oh, are we out of a job? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> we need your expertise, your your experience of how you light a shot and convey that in a real-time space, which is why, you know, tools like Unreal. You know, if you look at the cameras, you look at the lighting, it's all based pretty much close to real world lighting. Of course. Yeah. I think what's often been the barrier for people in other disciplines to embrace the CG workflows um, has been the tool set or just the interface yeah. feeling quite alien. So if a, a camera op is used to moving a physical dial and yeah. a physical camera around, to then switch to a bunch of switches yeah. and drop-down menus, it feels very alien. But with XR tools, with iPads that you can track through yeah. space and with virtual production, that that gap is um, is gradually becoming non-existent. And I think that's really exciting because obviously, like I keep saying, I don't come from a TD, you know, I'm not a TD, I'm not a technical artist, but my skills are have always been transferable. It's just the, the interface and the way software and hardware was designed felt like a big barrier. Yeah. But if I put on a VR headset, I'm using the same muscle memory that I have as, a, as someone who draws uh, or sculpts in the physical world, in the real world, but I'm bringing to the digital space. Same with virtual production techniques. Yeah. What are some of the things that you're noticing on set when you work with virtual production tools? I know it's a big umbrella term, virtual <laughs> production, and I'd love to get into this as well. A lot of, a lot of clients I work with think that um, it's a magic bullet. Oh, we'll just get an LED volume and that'll sort all our problems out. And it really isn't the case at all. I no. Mean, it, virtual I production mean, covers a whole wide range of stuff. A hundred percent. Like, I mean, virtual production, In if someone asks what is virtual production, it is an umbrella term. For me, it's any content created using any elements or all real time. Mm-hmm. So that could be um, an LED wall shoot. That could be an animated feature film like we did entirely in a real time engine. That could be a hybrid of XR and AR experiences. You know. That's essentially virtual production. But if we're specifically focused on, say, filmmaking, we're virtual production. You know, yes, the LED volume stages have become more popular. But, you know, there are other ways of getting sort of like lo-fi versions of virtual production. You can just get an amazing, you know, screen, you know, sort of like this size and shoot a close-up, right? But you still need content to put behind on that screen. And I think that's a misconception that people go, to, oh, you, there's no post. Well, hey, we saved tons of money. Well, not exactly, because the content that's been generated on the screen is visual effects mm-hmm. or CG content, which is traditionally budgeted for 
VFX and budget line item, right? So we're going to all produce you now, right? But like, you know, usually you raise finance for your shoot based on your cost. And then for the post and VFX, you do it in different countries based on tax incentives and you budget separately, you cash flow separately. But now you're doing a virtual production shoot and the financier looks at the line item and goes, why are we spending a ton of money on visual effects at this early stage? Yeah, you have to bring it up front. Yeah. And they've got to be quite close to final, if not 100%. absolute final, yes. because you're getting it in camera, yes. unless you want to green screen it out afterwards, but then it's kind of like counter. Or you, or you, ro or you roto it. And a lot of shows, you end up doing that. And you know, a lot of the bigger shows would just say, well, you know, it got us there, like 60% there, which, which is fine for the big shows. But if you're like an independent filmmaker and you're trying to, you know, be efficient. But if you're going to roto it out anyway, what's the, what, what's the point of putting it in camera? Exactly. And if you're, ch I mean, I guess unless it's really out of focus and it's more yeah, about the colors and lights. I think so. I mean, I've seen cases where you do roto just to put stuff behind, but you still need the lighting from the yeah. from the back end. That works. But if you're replacing the entire background, which mm. I've seen some shows do, why? Why? Right. Yeah. So then, then that's the thing that we've been saying from the start, dude. Is the fact that the decision for workflow, decisions for hardware and technology, has to be thought of from day one. It can't mm -hmm. be. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out as we go along. There is no excuse for that, you know. Like like if I wanted to, like we're starting our next animated film. We got our next movie greenlit, uh, which I can mention. It's called Mutineer Zero, based on a video game IP. It's going to be done on Unreal Engine Five. Um, amazing, fun, common, Tencent not financiers, and we're already speaking to like scan. Like, how do we? What hardware do we need to start getting this out? We haven't cast yet but we're fully financed and we need to start thinking about technology now because that has an impact. Mm -hmm. It's a two year, or well, 18 months production. You can't think of that halfway. You've got to set your pipeline now. You've got to start cash flowing. How much are we going to spend on hardware? What type of people are we going to bring in? What hardware do they need? We're going to need X amount of Wacom tablets because we're going to have a lot of like, you know, 2D work and yeah. virtual production work. And it's, it's wise to lock that stuff down upfront um, not just the, the hardware, because you want to standardize yeah. across your whole team, but your software environment as well, right? Because 100%. you don't want to be changing engines halfway through. No, do not update mid-production. So tell me why. <laughs> why is that a bad idea? Because you know what? My animated <laughs> show started off on Unreal 4.27. Okay, okay. And I'm, I know I need to move to 5, but what are the pitfalls of moving to okay, 5? Okay, look, there's a yes and no. Yes, you can technically update your software halfway if you wanted to, but be prepared to go into your Unreal scene and check for things to be broken because at the end of the day, it's a game engine. It's constantly in development, right? And the reason why we didn't update, so we started in 4.26.2. <laughs> shows you how long ago we started. I think it's October 2021 or something. Um, actually, October 2020, we did the first test, actually. Um, but we didn't update because we had landed all our financing in place and the train for film production has started, mm -hmm. which means that we had a deadline to hit. We knew we had to get the movie finished at this time in order to hit the sales market, like the EFM, the European film market, and the AFM, the American film market, and all the sales and distributors. And we knew our budget only took us about this much, right, to get this done. So you're in, once that film production train is moving, it's moving. Yeah. So anything to that disrupts the process, it's going to cost you not just money, but time and resources. And that's an essential discipline to to, to be mindful of 100%. whatever you're embarking on, right? Yeah. Whether you've got a, a client that's waiting for that film to be delivered to distribute or whether you're doing something on your own, um, you've got to give yourself a deadline. Otherwise, you'll just be in this perpetual 
you know, creation and ideation mode. You've got to draw that line. Yeah, you've got to put it out there. Otherwise, <laughs> why, are you, why are you bothering to create something if you're not going to show someone, entertain someone? It is, it is hard, though. I mean, it's hard, like, you know, I mean, we're doing, we're doing this, this podcast now, but like, last night I was actually tweaking a shot before we deliver the final movie. And that's a pro and con. The pro is we can. Mm-hmm. Right, we can get it to the point as the best that we can. Where tra- conventional approach to animation, like the Maya, the Houdini pipelines, where you have tons of lighting compositors, you know, especially compositing. Right, if I wanted to tweak a shot because we we got a feedback from one of our distributors, going, you know, I think we should tweak that shot. That would really help themselves. Conventionally, you're like, yeah, it's done. We'll get it right in the next one because it's done. The post house is closed. You don't have any money left. All your animators have gone. Mm-hmm. It's done, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas we're in real time world. I just open up Unreal Engine, do the tweak, hit render, overwrite the frame because it's final. Overwrite the frames. It's final pixels. There's no compositing. It's what you see is what you get. I don't change the lighting, so the color grade is fine. The color mm-hmm. is just not going to mm-hmm. murder me. It hasn't disrupted our deliverables. Yet, as a filmmaker, I'm not going to be squinting and, and when I'm watching it on like a streamer later yeah, in the year, yeah. thinking, oh God, if only I got that right. So there is that. But then there's the con where not every filmmaker is as disciplined as us, right? And they were like, no, it's just not ready. It's just not ready. It's just not ready. You make us sound super disciplined, which as of if, course we as are. If. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's experience though, right? I yeah. think a lot then. I think when you ones. know, when you've been through the process where yeah. you've had to let certain shots go and you're like, damn you're still but now when you have the option to be able to update stuff so you know down to the wire uh you feel like you have a lot of responsibility there it's like you know this is i guess if you're a filmmaker that's emerging now that hasn't had to go through the old way of working it seems just like par for the course but i'm so grateful that we have that ability now and even versioning the fact that you could couple of things I'm interested in from an animation point of view is replacing graphics within the engine, like yeah. signs and stuff, yeah. so that it's localized to the audience. Yep. And even replacing lip sync when it's dubbed. So say you've got an animated scene when the character's doing their thing and my original language, the original performer mm. performed it, uh, in, in, you know, the, the character's an English speaking yeah. character, performed yeah. it in English. To then get it dubbed, if I can shoot the recording session with the with the dubbed actor in whatever, whatever language they're dubbing in with the iphone camera there it means in theory i can take that facial animation and just replace it on my original and you might think well is that really necessary because there are dubbed movies everywhere that have lip sync that doesn't match the um the new language but that's that but that's what we talk about ai now right right that's where ai comes in yeah like back in the day you would have to reanimate those mouths like mm. you know for for rift we use iclone which mm-hmm. is a phenomenal piece of software that you know that plugs into Unreal seamlessly, and we have this called Accu Lip Sync. My biggest gripe, dude, if, if anything scared me the most getting into animation was lip sync. I'm like, how do I get that perfect? Because bad lip sync is bad lip sync. It yeah, just puts yeah. you off, right? Yeah. And you know, with Accu Lip Sync, I just take the WAV recorded from the voice session, feed it in. It uses some sort of AI tool set, and it generates lip sync. Now, of course, I speak very fast. You speak in a certain tone. Everyone speaks in certain tones. You can go in and tweak that. Mm-hmm. I'm a director and I'm tweaking lip sync and I have to send that back to my animators. So that's where things like AI really helps. But then mm-hmm. you take it much further, like stuff like Respeecher, which is an amazing software where I can record my voice. I train the model based on my voice. So I read a book for an hour to it, like a, like a Philip K. Dick book or something, right? Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. I read that and, um, and it knows my voice. It knows all my intonations, all my quirks. And then I'll say a line and it'll turn it into a female voice, an older voice. 
mm-hmm. and it's my performance. It's just the voice has changed. That helps mm-hmm. massively with dubbing or or changing lines or changing characters if you yeah. wanted to. Yeah, Omniverse has something called audio to face oh, that yeah. does a similar thing as yeah. well. Yeah, that animates the lip sync to to the audio file. So you said you've been working since 1998, outed yourself as an old timer. I know, I, I know. I won't mention when I started working, but it's very easy to find out on LinkedIn. Uh, not far off from you. Um, do you remember what it was like trying oh, to build God. a PC to help you get your head around this whole 3D uh, thing? Yeah, I remember building my first Pentium 75 computer and I would go to the computer fair in Tottenham Court Road and buy all the, the motherboard, the case, the RAM, the graphics card and the CPU and yeah. the monitor. And then you go back home and you're like, and there was no YouTube back then, by the way. So I couldn't go watch someone build, build this thing, thing, right? I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. Okay, the RAM goes here and you plug it all in, you put a computer on and it's beeping. Oh, RAM entered wrong. Or I haven't grounded myself, so I'm shorting up the motherboard. And you go back to the thing, <laughs> yeah, this thing ain't working. Like, yeah, because you shorted it. It was, it was painful. It was scary. Like every time I built a PC back then, it was like, I hope it works. It works, yeah. Um, whereas like today, I don't have to worry about that. You know, I've got like people that do this day in, day out, and you just need to tell them what you need. Yeah, well, what you want to do, right? What you want to do. So yeah. I was slightly more sophisticated than you. I would order <laughs> my parts online and I'd read about, um, again, the, the help that you would get would be on forums and yeah. I, you'd try and follow advice from randoms who sound like they know what they're talking about. And I try to match components that, again, a random person would talk about online. But I'd order from a site, site called Scan, um, same Scan that, that, yep. that we're talking about today, and they'd get all the all the components would be uh, shipped to me, and I'd assemble it myself like you. I tried to follow guides online, but it was through forums, and I'd never know who was giving me the right, right. advice. And generally, if I got past the beeping stage where the RAM was in wrong, um, it would run okay for a bit and then I'd get these blue screens of death and maybe that's software driven, but quite often the hardware would be mismatched. Yes. So it would run okay for a bit, but what was actually happening was every hardware component was stressing the other hardware component out. So it ran okay for a bit, but eventually something would die. Often the motherboard, um, sometimes the hard drive would fail yep. because it, just because the thing's being mismatched or wired incorrectly. And I never really got good at that, but I sort of suffered through that for years. For years so i'm it's great now where you've got all these specialists out there yeah and like you say you just say you know what is it that you're trying to achieve this is what i need to do this is what my you know my project is yeah what the goal is yeah and then they go off and think about it and then come back with a recommendation right, right down to the coolants as well i remember like when we got the machine to work on riff from scan and i remember the first thing i noticed you know being an amazing pro art motherboard and everything was the amount of fans that were in there I'm like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. We're going to be rendering in real time. We're going to be crunching pixels mm. in real time 24 yeah. seven. Of course we're going to need a fan, which yeah. is why my machines never crash. Because usually the crash is associated with overheating, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And a, a lot of my, um, the work that I'm doing does involve experimental software. So right. early beta stuff, like early versions of Omniverse or VR tools that are kind of early access on Steam. So particularly with the VR tools, they're made by startups who are just trying to figure out what could be possible here. And all of these tools have high potential of making the whole process more accessible for someone like me. Uh, but it comes at a, at a price, which is it could be unstable, the software. 
but I never have to worry about the hardware being unstable. Yeah. I've been using my 3XS system for a couple of years now and touch wood, it's like rock solid. That never fails. The software can be all over the shop and sometimes the experimental stuff is this path of the course. But I, it's so great to know that that big variable there, the hardware environment that you're, you're, you're producing your show in is the most reliable thing. Do you remember we had to reformat machine every every like couple of months because it's a crash and you go into like yeah. safe mode, right? Yeah, safe yeah. mode in Windows yeah, to yeah. reformat your drive. The, the defragging of the hard drive the ain't gonna cut it. Like my FreeSX, um, my FreeXS um, machine at home, the one I've been using for Rift for like, God, just over two years now, right? I haven't once reformatted at all. Yeah. I've updated drivers, of mm -hmm. course. That's what you get with Windows and, yeah, yeah. and and graphics cards. I've never had to like reformat. And yet this thing is cranked out an animated feature film entirely in that machine. Yeah, it just shows you like, you know, talking to the right people mm -hmm. to build your machine. Yeah. It gets like, rid of the headache for a start. Oh, yes. But then it pays dividends, man. Like you've got a, a super reliable environment to, 100%. to tell your stories. So Haz, this has been an awesome <laughs> session getting into, and we can keep- I feel uh, like we could go on, dude. We, we talk, <laughs> and I, I think maybe we should in, in, future, uh, in future podcasts like this. 100%. Um, just to wrap up, what's, uh, what's next for you? Um, we're halfway through 2023. What's yeah. kind of got you, got you focused right now? Well, the animated film that just got greenlit, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, that's our big focus now. We are prepping for that. That's a bigger team than Rift. And I guess that's the thing, you know, each project you do, you get bigger, more ambitious, mm -hmm. more people come on board, but you set a pipeline up that keeps getting involved. We're working on a video game cinematics. I'm directing the cinematics for this game called this, for this tiny movie you might have heard of called Dune, which involves like sandworms and stuff. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm directing cinematics for that, which is amazing. We're working closely with the amazing team at Funcom on that, mm -hmm. um, which they released, the, I think they released a trailer for um, the Games Award in January, so you can check that out. So we're doing that, and we are developing a bunch of video games. Obviously, Max Beyond being our offshoot for Xbox consoles, we're doing that. We're actually releasing a Fortnite game using UEFN, Unreal Engine Fortnite, which has been a massive game changer for us. Um, so if you follow on Instagram, you'll see like I've posted stuff on my Instagram showing me running our Fortnite game on a PlayStation 5. I still get butterflies thinking that, right? So we are heavily involved in that. And obviously we're looking at AI, we're looking at Gen AI specifically on how we could help facilitate our storytelling and our creation. But dude, there's just so much happening. Like, and it's just a great time to be a creator. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. So a quiet one then for you. Yeah, it's gonna be a nice quiet one this year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks a lot, Haz. Thanks, man. It's Pleasure. been good chatting to you. Thank you.